Welcome to Bonehead Weekly, our special guest writer, Mark Steensland. See, now I tried to say it as correctly as possible. And as we were getting started, you were telling me you used to keep a collection of everyone who got it wrong, right? Yes, that, that's correct. Yeah, I used to work for a magazine as an editorial assistant. And so all the press releases were sent to me. And it was incredible how many of these companies would just misspell my name. Uh, all kinds of variations, you know, putting letters in that don't exist, leaving letters out, of course, and so on. And uh, so I kept all of those and, and put them up in my cubicle. So I was wallpapered with all of the misspellings of my name. Uh, but, you know, that's the way it goes. So that's okay. Nobody ever remembers us either. <laughs> so you not only have written books, you've written you've been journalism, you have written screenplays. Yes. And there is so we try to do as much research as we can on every one of our guests, but you have been a little bit harder to find different things about. So if I give you a question and you go, that's very generic. I apologize up front. <laughs> okay, no worries. So, the writer of Jacob's Wife, before we get started previously of how, you know, what, what got you to film, what got you to want to write, I'm curious, Miss Kathy Charles was on the show beforehand, and she said something that I found fascinating, which, which was that she did not mind, she actually enjoyed rewriting other folks' scripts. Right. Now, I'm curious, because you were on it, uh, you were doing it before her, how do you feel about other assholes <laughs> rewriting your scripts? <laughs> well, now, that's your word. Uh, well, this but... is Bonehead Weekly, and if you had watched a few episodes, you would realize oh, I have. We're, we're, oh, I have. we're very jovial. Yeah, so I noticed, by the way, that you gave Lady Charles a name like that, but you haven't called me Sir Mark or Sir Steensland yet. So. I will call you <laughs> Sir whatever you like. You just have to no. So Sir Steensland. No, I prefer, I prefer Professor. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. First, you show us your phone made out of a coconut, and I will call you Professor. <laughs> now, uh, we did not uh, know there was going to be a Gilligan's Island uh, reference yeah. today. Actually, I was going to show you my drum kit, but no. Anyway, uh, okay, so. Um, I want, oh, Captain, my captain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Keep going. Um, so, Jacob's wife. Uh, I was the original writer on right. Jacob's Wife. It was my screenplay. Um, I wrote it back in, I mean, the, the original version of it was way back in probably 2007 or eight. It never was completely written at that point. I had the con. Pause, don't didn't actually write the script until uh, 2015 is when I finally finished uh, the screenplay and then submitted it to some screenwriting competitions, including Shriekfest, which I had been in before and is a, is a great competition. It's a, the greatest horror film festival in the world. And, um, and so then I ended up winning uh, the top uh, prize in the screenwriting competition for Jacob's Wife in 2015. And uh, Denise Gossett, who is the, um, you know, the founder and the person who runs Shriekfest, uh, I knew that she knew, and I am a huge Barbara Crampton fan, of course, and Ryan. I thought Barbara would be perfect 
for this part. And so I asked Denise if she could help me get the screenplay to Barbara and she said yes. And we got it to Barbara and Barbara read it and contacted me immediately and said, I wanna do this. I want to produce this movie and I wanna star in this movie. And that started then this very long process, you know, over five year process to uh, get the movie into the version that you are now seeing. So there were, you know, there, I mean, this is really standard procedure I know. Uh, with most things is that, um, you know, you're always working on finding the film that you want to make. And every, you know, go through something. I mean, I worked as, I did some rewrites on it for a little while and then, you know, other writers came on and, and I just kept telling Barbara, you know, you got to do what you got to do. I want you to make the movie you want to make. You're the producer. And, uh, and so, you know, she kept going um, in that direction, uh, obviously working extensively with Kathy. And then, of course, when once Travis Stevens came on, uh, then uh, Travis doing his own work on it. And, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen in that process, but film is a collaboration. It's, uh, it's unique in that sense. And, uh, and so that's what happens. It's not just the screenplay. I mean, really, if you think about it, and I've heard this said in different ways, I say it like this, which is, you know, you make a movie five times. Yep. You, you make a movie when you write it. You make a movie when you cast it. You make a movie when you shoot it. You make a movie when you cut it and you make a movie when you score it. And every single one of those things has the power to completely change the movie. I mean, all you have to do is look at how many times movie scores have been recorded for movies and then thrown out and another score, another composer is brought in to completely rescore the movie. And, uh, and so, you know, that's just, again, that's just part of the process. So one of my favorite things that Travis did uh, and from what I understand is he's the one who was responsible for this was changing the character of the master from the male version that was in my screenplay to the female version played by Bonnie Aarons. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I, when I heard that, number one, I was like, that is a great idea. And when I heard Bonnie Aarons was going to play the part, you know, I was like, of course, ecstatic that uh, that that was happening. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's all the good stuff that comes out of it, uh, you know, as well. So just part of the process. Now I've heard that before, but I, that's fascinating. I saw James doing this because I think we're five times. You always hear you. I usually hear the three times you make a mm -hmm. movie when you write it, shoot it, and then edit it. And then, mm -hmm. and then all the, all the greats normally say you don't have it till you start putting it together. Yeah. Right. So, right. and then you just kind of rewrite the whole movie again, but I never heard that five times. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Oh, sure. I, no, I'm totally uh, stealing it. Yeah. Well, please do. I mean, I really, it, it's, it really is those things. I mean, you know, when you have a cast and you have a very, very particular cast, obviously that changes everything about who those characters are and how yeah. they are going to appear and so forth. I know you asked Kathy when she was on if she wrote with particular actors in mind. And right. I mean, I do that all the time. What I do frequently, though, is I, I do impossible casting. So, uh, for instance, you know, I haven't done this specifically, but as a for instance, like I will write for a character played by an actor, but from the 1970s version of that actor. 
you know, so there's no way you can get that actor to play this part, but that's who I'm thinking of, you know. For uh, example, are you talking about Pacino before he started screaming? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, um, or for- It's not actors, a dig. I yeah, like no. Pacino screaming, yeah. but you know yeah. exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, the guy sure. that's in The Godfather 2 is not the guy in Cinema right. Woman. Right, yeah, no, no, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, so yeah, and, and that creates a very interesting kind of dynamic for me as a writer then because I can see it in a very particular way but I also know you know that I'm not quote unquote in danger of having it happen that exact way you know somebody's not going to say oh I'm going to play this like that because you know that's that style of performance or that particular actor is not around anymore in that sense you know they're either older or they're gone you know I write for dead actors a lot also um, or with them in my mind, you know, just because it does help with the process sometimes. Mark, so. that's fascinating because I, I don't think, guys, we've ever talked to a screenwriter who gave us that answer before, who's talked about that, of specifically of pulling an actor out of just a time period. Mm. And like I said, Pacino is the best example I can think of. There's a ton, but that's the mm. one that I think most people would, if you look at him in Scarecrow, right? <laughs> look at him in, <laughs> yeah. you know, Glenn Ross, those are two totally different people. Right, right. Oh, yeah. It's just fascinating. Yeah. What's the most obscure one? Can you, can you name oh, it? Oh, you mean casting wise? Yeah, casting wise, as far as you're writing it in your head, but you're writing it for this actor oh. at this time period. Um, well, I, the last thing I wrote, um, I had Karen Black in my head for uh -huh. a, a particular part. So, I mean, I, you know, she's not obscure to a certain group or certain to, fan base. Not to yeah. us, but. <laughs> Correct, the, yeah. Right, right. But, uh, you know, I mean, she's a very specific uh, kind of performer. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely had her in mind for something that I was writing recently. For some of our folks in here, the cultured five easy pieces, Karen Black, or for some of you other, uh, Rob Zombie, House of a Thousand Corpses, Karen yeah, Black, no. Mother Firefly, yeah. <laughs> Mother Firefly. Those are two different Karen Blacks. No, no, uh, burnt offerings, Karen. Ah, uh, you know, yes, yes, uh, yes. yeah. I mean, and but then also interestingly, not just that kind of era, but then actually as an older actor so she that you know the role is for an older hollywood actor who isn't working anymore but she did work you know she did make uh -huh. those so it's kind of predicting uh, you know this different kind of thing but again i mean it's all about just what works inside my head and what helps get it onto the page in the most natural way possible and a lot of times it helps to have that sort of distance or separation you know uh sort of pretend that it is another performer, if you will, instead of just me playing all the parts like a like a puppet show, you know, which is what it yeah. is really. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so here's my cliche question: What was the movie or the book that got you growing up? I mean, that's a that you know, and I'm gonna say, which probably sounds cliched in itself, uh, which is there were a lot of different things I think that played into really kind of closing the deal, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm old enough to be, and my brothers are all a lot older than I was. So they were all really in the monster kid era. Uh, but it meant that I had all that stuff around me. So like my, the, the next closest brother in age to me 
is uh, seven years older than I am. So are you the middle or the youngest? I'm the youngest. Okay. And, uh, and so in the early seventies, you know, he had creepy, eerie, famous monsters, Mm -hmm. Aurora monster models and all that stuff. Um, My parents had been fans of the twilight zone. And so when night gallery uh, came on television, you know, or was going to be on television, they were very interested to see what Rod Serling was doing next. So we watched uh, Night Gallery. And of course, I, I love that. Now you're talking about somebody who was, oh, you know, five years old at the time. So it's pretty, uh, some of those are pretty um, uh, intense for somebody right. of that age. But I was, you know, definitely all of this kind of stuff was in the atmosphere. And um, my father died when I was six. And so as I often tell it, it was kind of a, you know, this sort of strange transition to go from all this stuff that was like having to do with horror and death. And then suddenly, you know, I'm in the funeral parlor, uh, you know, looking at his corpse and going to the cemetery and, you know, kind of dealing with that reality of, um, of death. And so it was a very interesting I think a very impactful kind of experience for me because it made all of that stuff that the stories were about real in a way that I don't think it would have been obviously if that hadn't happened. Uh, about a year after my father died, my mom uh, you know, allowed a man to come into her life. Uh, he happened to be a, a manager at a, a local two screen movie theater and um, I think he partly thought that, you know, a way to sort of get on my mom's good side was, you know, make me the star of the show. And she was keeping me around, I think, partly as protection. And, and um, you know, so we went to the movies all the time. He took me behind the snack bar, up to the projection booth. I got to see all that behind the scenes stuff. And then I got to watch all these movies and uh-huh. um, the movies, you know, that I didn't like were these Saturday morning kitty matinee things, Born Free, Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion. You know, I, I didn't like that. I wanted to go back to the stuff we were watching at night, which was Legend of Hell House and Night Watch, or uh, Death Watch, rather. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I'm sorry, it was Night Watch, the Elizabeth Taylor one based on the stage play. Um, you know, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, Emperor of the North. I mean, all this stuff. I think probably all of that said, uh, probably Legend of Hell House was the one that really kind of did it for me at that point. You know, so this is 1973, and uh... he dropped out oh. again. There you are. Oh, I'm still. I'm back. Yeah, yeah, you're back. You just okay. Just dropped out for just a second. Right after okay. the Legend of Hell House did it for you. Yeah, well, the Legend of Hell House did it for me. Um, and, uh, you know, seeing that movie on the big screen, I was seven years old, um, really had a big impact on me combined with all of that other stuff. Uh, I think it was Phantom of the Paradise uh, a year or two years later that really kind of made me appreciate filmmaking as filmmaking. I mean, De Palma is yeah. such a master of, you know, cinematic language. And that really, uh, really kind of kicked it. John Carpenter's Halloween is the one that I think taught me, you can do this outside of kind of the traditional big Hollywood studio thing. You can do this as an independent filmmaker. And of course, 
you know, that was the time when uh, Romero was doing the same thing. Toby Hooper was doing the same thing. Um, and I was uh, ready to do the same thing myself. And so it's been a, a very long career of doing or trying to do that kind of thing, you know, hopefully at some point at the, at the same level as those guys were doing, but uh, you know, anyhow, so. And imagine where your career would be if you were inspired by Clarence to cross that line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had to look it up. I am You never heard of it, Chad? It's, <laughs> no. it's a Disney film. No, it's an MGM film. It's an MGM film? I always thought that yeah. was a Disney film. I thought that was in fact, right up. In fact, the movie poster has the lion in the logo yelling at the bottom. He's no relative of mine. <laughs> oh, my God. It, I Honest to God, in my head, because my mom was such a Haley Mills fan. Mm. So there are several of those movies that I had. So in my head, it goes right along with a parent trap. Uh, mm. Anyway, we're getting oh, yeah. off topic. And, and, I'm sorry. Joe, you may be thinking of Lambert the sheepish lion is that from the disney one is yes. disney yes, now yes. i knew what the cross out <laughs> line was but so hell house mm -hmm. by richard matheson yeah is one of is my favorite haunted house book yeah i get so i wonder how you feel about this because if you could see past this desk on the other side is yes. the original one sheet Yes. The Legend of Hell House. And if you could see past this desk on this side is the original one sheet of The Legend of Hell House. So we both have it with the blood yes. and the, yeah, yes. yeah, 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 with the hand. It makes really yeah. no sense for the movie, but I love yes. the poster. Yeah, right. Right. So why is it that we get in trouble? When, well, you haven't said this, but I'm about to say this when I say I like The Haunting, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting, but mm. I prefer Hell House. Mm. when it comes to a book and that is one of those movies that actually i think and matheson said it before he died why yeah. has it of all the films by the way roddy mcdowell it's a perfect film it's yeah. directed by john hodge right yeah yeah and of course joe prefers liam neeson's the haunting i do not <laughs> son of a bitch you son of a bitch don't you ever don't you ever it's a pretty lovely of neeson but you son of a bitch you it's keep on the bond away from my picture anyway <laughs> Why have they never remade that? Well, well, Del Toro wanted to for I years. I know. But yeah, Del Toro's and, been attached yeah. to everything. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's why he ended up with Crimson Peak is because, yeah. you know, he wanted to do Hell House. And so, uh, and finally that. Uh, yeah, I love, I love Hell House. I love the book. I love the changes that Matheson himself made. Um, you know, yeah. I think the movie works in some ways better than the book. Uh, oh really you know yeah i mean i i think some of the some of the character stuff in the book gets a little i don't know i mean it may be that i experienced the movie first and, and you know then read the book afterwards um but uh but the, you're right i mean it, to my mind the movie really is i mean it is the mount everest of haunted house haunted house movies um you know for sure so yeah i love it it, and it, it re, it's one of the we're getting off topic but it's <laughs> i love roddy mcdowell so yes it's probably it may be one of his best performances oh i agree yeah that absolutely. and uh lord love fright a duck <laughs> well i love fright night we're going to talk about something that's non-horror i think that's one of, the other two have never seen it and i just caught it on t and i have seen it before and it's hard to find Do you have you ever seen it no lord love a duck he's a 30 some he was 37 or 38 playing an 18 year old psycho in a 60s black and white film oh nice if, if you have amazon prime it's on amazon prime oh, I did you watch it yet i have not watched yet it's on my oh, queue okay i'll have to check that out it's bizarre damn thing you've ever seen. It, you'll okay love it. cool you'll love cool. it cool 
you'll love it. All right. Anyway, James, you had a question. I, yeah, I did. I, so we talked about writing screenplays and, and how you do that. I want to jump a little bit because in the realm of small worlds and how these media seems to interact with media, you've written short stories, obviously, as well. We alluded to that earlier. And uh, Laurel Hightower, we've had on the show a couple times. Oh, cool. Uh, but you and her both happen to be in Midnight in the Pentagram, the yes. anthology. You have a story called uh, Black Jar Man, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes. I missed and- that. Laurel was over at my house two weeks ago. <laughs> well, there you go. See? See, this is why you keep me around, Joe. I read books. Anyway, <laughs> Please uh, resist that. I am as, so As you sorry. think about, uh, as you, uh, uh, how do you switch between the two? Because I am... The, the joke that we sometimes make is Joe says, you know, he's a failed director and I say I'm a failed author. How do you, uh, because those are two very different styles of writing. I don't think I have it in me to write a screenplay. Some would argue I should stay away from short You've stories too. You've written three of our short films, you asshole. <laughs> now I, I know, know why and we look, failed. And look how successful we've been when I write them. Now I know um, why we failed. Keep going, sorry. But, but that, 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 and so that's my question is, you know, and, and being a journalist as well, What's it like to, I guess, code switch almost between those three, or how do you approach those differently, or do you? Um, well, I think of all of them as storytelling because I do think that that's really what they all are. I mean, as a journalist, you are telling a story, or you're talking to somebody who is telling a story. Uh, obviously, prose fiction, same thing, um, telling a story. And it, the way that I think of it is, um, that they are different mediums in the sense of, I mean, a good metaphor perhaps is painting. Uh, you know, some images work as watercolors and other images just work better as oil paintings. If you've ever painted in these mediums, you know how incredibly difficult oil painting is, how much patience you need to put the layers on to actually wait for them to dry <laughs> and then to go into the next layer and you know all those kinds of things. And, uh, and so if you're writing a novel and you know it's an 80,000 word novel, I tend to think of that as like an oil painting. It is really big. You really have to have a different kind of patience. It's a different sort of approach, uh, but you get into that mindset as you are working with it. Uh, writing a screenplay is a very different experience. I mean, it's a lot more like acrylics, for instance, because acrylics go on quickly, they dry quickly. Um, and that's usually the way uh, screenplays go. I mean, you know, if you prepare them correctly and, and so forth, I think. I spend a lot of time preparing things and then, you know, uh, try not to write them until I'm actually ready to write the, you know, the script itself. Um, so it just kind of depends on what the story is and which medium it's going to really fit. Um, and sometimes those things connect. I mean, you know, uh, my stage play uh, is one of my favorite things. I think it'll make a great movie. And uh, I keep trying to get somebody to make it as a movie. Um, and I have written things that are books that are adapted into screenplays that have then become movies. I mean, you know, the special uh, is an example of that. And, uh, and so, you know, it just kind of, again, depends on the story itself and how much story is there. 
um, that's really important for a writer to be honest about. Because if you don't have a lot of story, then you know, make sure that you're trying to finish it in the proper length. You know, some things are made for short stories, and some things are made for novels. And you get into trouble when you try to take a short story idea and stretch it out to a novel, or a novel idea and try to shrink it into a short story. You know, so anyhow, when you're looking at that. And and does I, I guess you know? Obviously, I, I love to live in a world where we think about the art, which is what we really should do. Yeah. But there's also the consideration of the market. Mm-hmm. Does that ever, as you're thinking about an idea, do you ever think? And I'm not saying midnight in the pentagram, but let's say hypothetically, well, there's a call for this, and I have this that I could massage in that direction or is it more likely that you'll just go in a different direction yeah i i tend not to do that i tend to uh really try to find the things that i'm passionate about for one reason or another and and then to try you know to execute that the best way that i can i'm interested in telling particular kinds of stories uh i want to tell them as as best i can and i feel like um, there's always going to be a market for good stories. Well, you know, told, um, and especially these days, you know, I do this thing in, I teach a class of screenwriting and I tell the students, you know, producers work it for something. Cause I mean, if you, if you, anything is being proven by today's media landscape, it's that there is a market for everything. And I show them this example, which is, I don't know if you're aware of a subgenre of the romance novel that are uh, Bigfoot romance novels. Okay, this is where uh, <laughs> oddly know, enough, yes, yeah, somebody, okay. yeah. somebody yeah. broke yeah, their neck yeah. introduced me to that. Yeah. Yep. So you know, women are abducted by Bigfoot, and then they have a sexual relationship with this Bigfoot or whatever. I mean, you know, not that every one of them is like that, but. And now Mark is judging us because all three of us said yes. No, not at all. Yeah, no, I swear to God, I, mean, I was at a furry convention and those six sons of bitches started talking about Bigfoot. No, I'm joking. Keep going. Then they said, Joe, we love your costume. And Joe said, I'm not wearing it. I don't know. I have a costume. What are you talking about? Well, and my, my big problem with the Bigfoot romance novels is it's hard enough for me to compete with mere mortals. But when I'm when I'm competing with cryptids, when Mothman can pick up women, I always he, he literally can, can pick up women. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, again, you know, this idea is that, yeah, there is a market for literally almost anything. And But what I tell the students is you have to make a decision about how big of a market are you shooting for? You know, you can shoot for that market and you can have this very niche audience. You can get your stuff out there. I mean, you know, all of the mechanics are there for you to self-publish on Amazon to put your movies on YouTube or whatever you want to do. If you want to be a professional, then there are different kinds of considerations. And of course there are those considerations, but you know, I mean, I like to think that uh, the, the stories that I write are interesting enough that people want to spend the time and money on them to experience them. And, you know, so far it seems anyway that, uh, you know, that seems to be true. Um, and things are being made and things are in print or people are buying them and you know that kind of stuff so we just kind of keep going uh in that direction and and hopefully i get to find my audience you know so that's for my stuff 
and I and, and I'll ask one more question. Then no, I'll pass please, the time. Go, 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 go. But the the thing that I always like to ask as well is that uh, sometimes when we talk to authors, I, I always find it interesting. Is there something that you've written that has gotten a response that maybe you didn't expect it would get, or or you have people that come up to you and be like, "Yeah, that got to me way more than I thought it would," or mm. and and what what is that thing that you tend to hear the most about? Well, yeah, that happens all the time and in different ways. So I don't know. I'm I'm guessing you're somewhat familiar with the special, um, and uh, you know with what that is about. Uh, and so uh, that has gotten some very strong reactions from people. A lot of people are really disgusted uh, by the idea itself. Uh, on the other hand, you know, a lot of people have come forward and said, this is, uh, this is really uh, an incredible story about this issue, addiction, and, you know, what happens to people and those kinds of things, which was what I was thinking about when I was writing it. I mean, I've had my own uh, issues in the past with addiction. And then, as I often tell the story, was inspired very specifically by uh, a thing many years ago. Uh, that the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office in Oregon uh, started, which was called the Faces of Meth. And uh, they took mug shots of people who had been repeatedly arrested for methamphetamine violation. And they showed this deterioration, you know, from nice looking person to, you know, this person is covered in scars and, and they look, you know, 20 years older and in a very short period of time. And I was just fascinated by the idea that people would do something to themselves, you know, and keep doing it even when this was what was happening. And so it became kind of this uh, thing that inspired me to write that particular version of that particular story. So that gets people in a lot of different ways, very strong reactions to that. The other side of it, and this is the other interesting thing that I tell my students a lot about, which is you really have to see your films with an audience before you understand how filmmaking really works. And, uh, and what I mean by that is that, you know, when I was making films and I wasn't seeing them with an audience, I understood everything that was going on. I understood what my shots meant, what my cuts meant and all that kind of stuff. Suddenly I project it for an audience and they're having this reaction to stuff that was totally unexpected. A short film of mine called The Ugly File, for instance, starts with uh, a title sequence uh, of sh different shots around the town that I was living in at the time, Erie, Pennsylvania. And, you know, I had chosen all these things that I just thought were interesting examples of architecture. People respond to that and say, oh, there's something terrible going on in the town. That's why it's so like run down and decrepit like that. Like there's some kind of weird something. That's why the babies are like that, you know, and stuff. That's not at all what I intended. And yet that's what the audience is getting. Same thing in uh, Peekers, another short film of mine. We had this fake newscast happening because you know the newscaster plays a role in the climax of the film. Um, so we had this fake, <clears throat> excuse me, fake newscast. And we had just written some kind of fun stuff uh, that we thought was sort of clever or, you know, it was just, we were kind of having fun with it. Oh, this guy who was, uh, you know, participated in MK Ultra experiments. And you know this, that, and the other thing. People come out of the film saying, "Oh, it's because of that MK Ultra thing." You know, that's what's happening with these these doubles, and you know this kind of stuff. They make this connection, and so that was unexpected, also. 
uh, and again, I go back to this idea that until you experience that and you realize how powerful this process is and how audiences respond to those things, you don't really know what to do on the other side to engineer those responses in the way that you want to ultimately. So, you know, until you watch a film again with an audience and you see everybody laughs at that joke every time, everybody gasps at that moment every time. That's when you realize you're getting it. And, uh, and now you say, oh, okay, I want the audience to do this now. I'm gonna put this kind of moment in there and that's how this is gonna work. And I think that's ultimately you know, what professional filmmaking is about, certainly. And it takes, you know, like I said, it takes the time to experience those sorts of reactions and, and understand that's what's going on. So yeah, I mean, it, to answer your question, it happens all the time and it is in these you know, different sorts of ways but I think there's something to, to get out of all of it for sure. Thank you. Yeah. This is an odd question. I want to, but how much do you talk about your own films with your students? A very little. I was um, wondering, especially yeah. something like the special and we start talking about <laughs> holes and things where to put, where you put um, things in holes. I yeah, mean, no, it's, it's not, it's not for that reason. Um, it's because I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, uh, but uh, at the same time, there is the element of, OK, I am a professional, you know, I am working in the business. I do understand what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, and so, you know, uh, I did I did make it a tradition then to show peakers as part of a short film block. Um, when we are covering that topic in a very particular class, in my intro to film studies class. And so it's part of this uh, group of short films that when we're doing some narrative analysis or genre analysis. Um, and, uh, and so this, you know, the, and the students enjoy that. They like the film, uh, it works well, it's short. It tells them that I know what I'm doing, that this is what I do. Uh, and you know, so it goes over well, and then I don't have to, you know, like get into a lot of other stuff. I mean, it, it's all out there if they want to, you know, if they yeah, want to find it. I mean, it's not hard. I mean, they're already looking, all of us, because we all work in higher ed, they're already mm -hmm. looking us up on Rate My Professor and everything yeah, else before right. they even get to right. the fact that it even occurred to me that you teach screenwriting. And as we we're yeah, sitting yeah. here and we we're talking, I was like, there's 30 students looking at it going after class or during class, Googling everything that you've done right yeah. through it yeah so back to jacob's wife a little bit one of the things that i talked to i'll stop calling her lady charles by the way <laughs> when i said asshole earlier i meant it in general yeah but i love the fact that she messes if she actually listens to this or watches this and goes did you just call me an asshole i was like well not really no but i what i liked about it I, I like many things about it. I love, and I love some of the gender stuff, especially that was changed later. Like you were talking about what I, mm -hmm. but I, I love the fact that Jacob isn't evil. He's right. not, he's a three-dimensional person. Does that make sense to you? He, oh, yeah. he, he is a man who is actually a pretty good guy mm -hmm. who is just, and we've, you know, we've all been in long-term relationships where, well, this is just what it is. And he doesn't necessarily appreciate any of it. And I don't even know that she necessarily appreciates anything either. Well, that, but maybe that's just what I'm taking away from it mm -hmm. until she has this experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just love that about it. So was that from the jump in your screenplay that Jacob's yes. not an asshole? 
yes just a good guy who probably i don't even know if he's i don't even he's just going through his life this is his life this is what he wanted yes i mean this is this is the situation that they are in that was part of what i was oh i've been with my wife for let's see uh 30 uh, something years anyway um and so uh we're not going to show her this later in fact we'll cut to 34 years it's really bad um no anyway since 1989 um but uh you know so there i mean that absolutely was a big part of what was going on that's what Barbara responded to, uh, you know, that's what Travis responded to. I think that's what Kathy responded to as well. Uh, was that part of the idea? I mean, a big part of it for Barbara, of course, was, you know, that as an older actor, she's not getting offered those kinds of lead roles. And she saw this very substantial role, not just for herself, but obviously for somebody else and uh you know to play opposite of her and to, to have it be um you know these kinds of characters and so that was a big part of the attraction from the from the very beginning but yeah i mean absolutely that was uh, look my dad was an episcopalian priest oh really so, um yeah so uh you know priests figure largely in a lots of things that i write and um and of course you know that uh, particular aspect uh played a role there with jacob well who is it okay for me to ask and i hope it doesn't step on anybody's toes who who did you have in mind you were talking about you have these actors that sometimes in their lives who did you have in mind for playing jacob well that's an interesting that's an interesting story because um uh, when i was in erie pennsylvania i was teaching at penn state and um and i was making lots of different short films that's where i made ugly files where i made peekers i was working with this really terrific group of actors and i really got this great group of local actors together um and we were doing these things together we actually at one point we tried to make the special uh because i wrote it for these people and uh and so we tried to get that off the ground that didn't work uh, and Jacob's wife was one of those things where uh, the act, the two actors, the older couple in Peekers mm -hmm. uh, were actually the actors that were a big part of the inspiration for Jacob's wife also was, oh, Al and June would be so much fun to see in this kind of situation. I would love to see, you know, Al hunting around with a stake and hammer and uh, and so they were the actors that I originally conceived of as I was, you know, thinking about the script in its first and its early versions, the kind of the version that was only as far as an outline and never got completely written. <clears throat> Excuse me. And <clears throat> so. Uh, and again, it wasn't until later I moved back to California where I'm from. And I picked up the script again, you know, by then, um, I'm pretty sure Al had passed on. And, uh, you know, so I mean, it wasn't, yeah. I knew I wasn't going to make the movie with them. Uh, but that was what was at the back of my mind. So kind of a different case there. 
So that we, actually, oh, go, go ahead. ahead Joe. No, go ahead. I was going to say that actually, uh, as, as Joe Boyd has said earlier, we've done a couple short films and one that we did, uh, and we usually do them with exactly a budget of, uh, I think the last one we did, we did box wine and a couple <laughs> uh, pizzas uh, to feed the cast. Uh-huh. Um, but that being said, we use stage actors and, and, and they did phenomenal. Uh, one of them will undoubtedly watch this episode. So, hey, John, you did a great job. But <laughs> that actually brings up a point because you mentioned you've done stage, you've done film. And is, is there any way that if you think about envisioning it, stage tends to be a different style of acting than film does? And, and so how does that play out when you think about how you're going to write that or how you would, quote unquote, stage it? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, it is a very different process. And uh, of course, you know, any actor who is going to act in all mediums, again, you're talking about the difference between watercolor, oil, acrylic, you're talking about the difference between screenplay, stage play, short story, novel. Um, And the same thing is true, stage acting, film acting, television acting, commercial acting. Um, They're all different in certain senses. And the biggest difference is for stage actors or for actors who love the stage, they they don't like the, my experience has been that they don't like the start and stop uh, of film and television acting, okay? They want to get up to a certain energy level and then they maintain that energy level. They're accustomed to maintaining that performance for 90 minutes, two hours. I mean, think about doing Shakespeare, you know, three hours, three and a half, four, um, you know, that's a huge, a huge undertaking and very different from let's deliver these lines, stop, go sit down, come back. And now, you know, give that to me again at the same energy level where you were at. So different actors are going to have a different response to that. And, you know, and that's going to be part of the challenge of making the film, depending on who you're working with. Uh, the first feature that I made, when I, my independent you know, crime drama, which I made for almost nothing, um, The Last Way Out, I went, I had the script, and then as I was getting ready to cast it, I went to all the local stage productions in my community and watched every play that was happening at that time and handpicked all the people from all those different productions and approached all of them and said, I want you in this movie, I want you to play this part. And I got, you know, all of them said yes. Uh, and then we had this crazy shooting experience. And at one point, because we were doing it for nothing and I couldn't pay anybody, everybody had to, you know, like go do their real jobs or whatever. And so there were several places in that film where none of the actors in the scene could be on set at the same time. So I had to shoot each actor separate from the other actors. One of the scenes involved like five actors. And so when you watch the film, it's all cut together. They look like they're all, of course, interacting with each other. None of those people were in the room together uh, at the same time. I was off camera saying the lines that they were responding to, you know, and they're delivering these lines to camera and then they're leaving and then another actor is coming in. And I mean, you know, you don't want to do it that way, uh, but it's part of the process. If that's where you're at, then, then, you know, that's what you do. Um, so I think it's just about kind of goes back to collaboration, kind of goes back to flexibility and knowing uh, what you're doing. And, and if you've got people who are willing to 
to go along with that, then, you know, that's what works best, of course. We did a short film called The Third Degree, and basically it changed like you were talking about with Jacob's wife. Of course, it just it changed because we're four or five years just getting it of me originally writing the first drafts. That sound about right, Chad, James. And then yep. and eventually getting to shoot it, we went from all male to two females, and it made it much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I said all that to say, you've said here and you've talked about different forms of writing. You've talked about how you view yourself as a storyteller. I'm curious, do you view yourself as a director or as a writer or both? And which would be the thing that you would desire the most? Uh, Because they are two different jobs. Yeah, they are two different things. I mean, I've always really been directed was because I was trying to get people to pay attention to my writing. Uh And, uh, you know, so I made a feature uh, because I wanted somebody to see what a feature screenplay of mine would look like. Um, and you know, I made the short films because, uh, I hoped that it could go, they could go on the festival circuit and, uh, create some buzz, you know, and which they did in, in a lot of instances, you know, and, and win prizes and, and those kinds of things. Um, but you know, now, fortunately, uh, the writing has, uh, has taken, um, you know, I think, uh, a different kind of precedence. Um, directing is very difficult especially when you have other people who are telling you about what you need to do or how you need to do it or those kinds of things and i've been very fortunate that everything i've made has been my final cut my final decision uh and you know i enjoy that kind of creative freedom so i suspect that if i do something again in the future that I would want to do it under those conditions. I mean, you know, that may not be the case, but hopefully uh, that would be the case. If I could finance low budget things on my own, you know, and kind of make them the way I want to make them and then uh, put them out there and get distribution for them and and so on. I mean, that's what I've done with these other things. So, you know, uh, I guess that's what would happen. But I mean, as a writer, it's very satisfying. I'm very satisfied with the with the writing. That's I really like that a lot. Thanks, Chad. Yeah. All right, Mark. I'm gonna go dig into your early career uh, because I love my friend James. Why? I noticed that <laughs> you worked on a TV movie called Escapes. Yeah, my brother That's, made that, my brother made that movie. Your brother made that movie. Yes, and it starred Vincent Price. Yes, and because James is a huge Vincent Price fan, so I have to ask: Do you at least have a Vincent Price story? Um, well, I mean, I kind of do, I didn't get to meet him when, uh, he shot, uh, those parts. So my brother, uh, made that movie. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's listed as a TV movie. It was released on video. Um, you know, it's an anthology collection of short story. I mean, you know, short films kind of put together. Um, and, uh, Vincent Price plays this character introducing the stories you know kind of in this serling-esque fashion yeah and uh and my brother knew you know he had like you know he didn't have names for the cast he knew he needed a name for the cast in order to sell the movie ultimately and so he went after vincent price 
Um, and when he met with Vincent Price and started telling him about the project, uh, Vincent Price said, the last thing I'm going to do is go on to another, you know, cemetery, fog, candles, you know, coffins, all that kind of stuff. No way I'm doing that. And so my brother pitched him this very abstract, uh, you know, if you've seen the film, uh, there's this long hallway that has like all of these arms kind of coming out of it. And it's very abstract, it's very weird. Um, but Vincent Price, that's why he said yes. He's like, this is different. This is, I've not, I haven't done this before. And, uh, and so he agreed to, uh, to do it then because of that. And, you know, that ended up being uh, the way, yeah, that, that project worked out. So how did you feel when your brother says, I got a role for you? <laughs> large creature. Yeah, large creature. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, I was willing to, to do that and kind of get into all the special effects makeup and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a terrific, uh, it was a terrific lot of fun. Awesome. This is, he's the second person now. Well, actually the third, because we had the writer director of uh, whisper to a screen screen who, mm. who got, so we had Jeff Burr and, uh, Oh my God, I can't believe it. Courtney Joyner. Do you mm -hmm. know either one of them? I mean, I know of them, but not know of them. They've both been on the show and they both mm -hmm. tell the same. And, and in their defense, their version of going to Vincent's house to convince him <laughs> to do the wraparound for another anthology yeah. <laughs> is very similar, except uh -huh. they got bread. Right, yeah. guys? They yeah. were yeah, baking. Yeah. <laughs> Joyner tells the story about he was baking bread. Yeah. Baking yeah. bread. Yeah. And he, he said, it's, I, it's been 40 years and I could still smell. It smelled wonderful. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. when, you're, when you're starting out, you worked on several different films. Like there's Midnight Run. There's, mm -hmm. there's uh, Day of the Dead. So can you talk a little bit about being, you know, a bit player and a production assistant and all those things? Yeah, I mean, all those things are different in one way or another. So Day of the Dead was uh, very interesting experience it was from uh because i was a journalist mm -hmm. and uh and so <clears throat> the publicist for day of the dead very clever uh decided to do the press junket uh over the course of a weekend and uh all of the press people were going to come to the set get made up as zombies and put into the movie that was part of the whole press experience that weekend and, um, and so we all flew into Pittsburgh on uh, Friday night uh, and then put up an hotel and then, you know, we got made up, uh, put in the movie during Saturday and then we had uh, kind of this dinner party thing on Saturday night where we got to interview Romero and, and all the players. And, uh, and then, you know, Sunday, some follow-up stuff and so on. So I, you know, I mean, that experience then uh, that's where that experience came from. And it was an incredible experience. I was working for a magazine called Preview, that's P-R-E-V-U-E, -E, uh, at the time run by uh, a guy you may know from the comic industry named Jim Steranko. I have interviewed Steranko. Oh, okay. I actually yeah, well, oh, yes. <laughs> interviewed him last year before COVID at a convention. Uh, interesting. Well, I worked for Steranko and- Hate um, him or love him? I, I, Strango is unbelievable. He was one of the most incredible working experiences that I ever had. Uh, and that is one of the highest and one of the lowest. I mean, it was just, it was a remarkable 
it was a remarkable experience. I mean, you know, there's lots of stories there. No, there um, are. That's I was but... just curious. And he was great <laughs> to me. And I didn't yeah. have to be that damn tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, anyway, uh, so what what Steranko told me when I was going to Day of the Dead was um, get all of the guys who are below Savini on the makeup crew and tell them you get all of them into your hotel room by themselves and you interview them. They're the ones who are going to tell you the story. Yep. And so uh, you know who it was. It was John Bullich. It was Greg Nicotero. Yep. It was Howard Berger. You know, I mean, this was Greg's first movie. You know, Greg, I ran into Greg at a convention, uh, you know, a number of years ago, but I mean, many years after Day of the Dead, he's like, oh my God, Mark, I still have that issue of preview that I'm in, you know, because it's the first movie I worked on. <laughs> Um, he's and, a you know, kid. I mean, a yeah, kid. yeah. Oh, yeah, a kid. Well, so was I. I mean, yeah. that was I was a sophomore in college, and uh, so I was nineteen. And um, you know, so I got all those guys. Well, when the other reporters heard that that's what I was doing, they're like, "Hey, we want to come to that too." You know, so Uncle Bob Martin from Fangoria came in. Uh, Don Farmer from Splatter Times came in. Um, you know, the other guy who was there, he didn't come to my hotel room, but the other guy who was there was, um, shoot, uh, the guy who broke Halloween in the village voice, Tom, uh, I don't, the guy you lost, you've lost me on that one. Okay. He's famous for, you know, cause Halloween came out and like, nobody was really paying attention to it. And right. then this guy wrote a review in the Village Voice, which said, this is, a, you know, an incredible film. This is a new classic. And suddenly everybody was paying attention to Halloween. And so he was one of the other reporters there. Uh, but like I said, he didn't come to the room. Anyway, we had a great time. Uh, it was a really incredible experience. And yes, I'm in the movie for a split, split second. Uh, in one of the scenes, Uncle Bob and uh, Paul Gonier, who was writing a book about George at the time, obviously got a lot more screen time, you know, than the rest of us. And they got special makeup treatment and, you know, and all that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's that kind of an experience. I mean, that's a very different experience from uh, when I interned on Mannequin, for instance, uh, which was through the school where I was going. I was going to Ithaca College at the time. They had an incredible internship program thanks to a producer named Michael Nathanson who had gone there and was working for this company. So, you know, I worked on Mannequin for 23 weeks in the production office and got to learn everything about uh, how you put a movie together from the best people in the business. John Smith, the guys, the UPM, they, the whole crew had just come off of Billy Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., I mean, the stories of To Live and Die in L.A. alone. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, no, 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 take a pause. Chad, Chad, who was the guy? Tom Allen. Tom Allen, thank you. Yeah, that's it. You're was. welcome. Yeah. Let's take a pause. The same crew that did Man... Now, I'm not besmirching. I saw Mannequin way before I saw Live and Die in L.A., okay, <laughs> as a kid. But the same crew left freaking to go do that. Well, when I when I say that, I'm talking. No, no, about, I just find it fascinating. Yes, well, that, that's the way it works. I'm not talking yeah. about, um, you know, like all of the key creatives. I'm talking about unit production manager, production yeah. coordinator. I mean, the core elements that you need. All of those truck drivers, the drivers, yeah. you know, all of that stuff. And John, you, you know, that's the way it works. You get with the unit production manager. You get hired on their movies, and because it's so challenging, when a movie ends, you know, there's there's what they call, you know, the mysterious flu 
that starts going through the crew when you start to get to the end of a shoot because everybody's interviewing, trying to get the next job. And uh, so they're calling in sick to go interview with this movie or whatever. Well, if you're in good with a, with a good UPM, then they get another job and they call you and hire you. And so then you go with them. So, you know, John and his, and his production coordinator, I mean, that's what they did. And, and like I said, they were the best in the business. And, uh, you know, it was an incredible experience. We were at um, Bob Altman's Lionsgate uh, Studios, which yeah. is not Lionsgate. That's not the product, not the what we're talking about these days. But this is right. way back mm-hmm. when he had his own production, you know, uh, offices and a little post-production facility and stuff. And they would rent to movies. I mean, the movies that were in there, I worked on Emilio Estevez's Wisdom, his directorial debut. Uh, Eight Million Ways to Die was cutting around the corner. Uh, um, what's his name? The uh, uh, shoot. They were making another Death Wish movie. Cherry Two Thousand was up the hall. Oh, Cherry Two Thousand. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just endless with what was going on in this small space with all of these creative people and you know, just amazing experiences. Yeah, I just really feel fortunate to have had all of that uh, incredible stuff and get to see the business at the time, you know, at that time, because it was very different from, you know, what it has kind of turned into, I think, in a lot of different ways. So best story you've got that you heard about live and die, live and die in LA. To live and die in LA. Best story from to live and die in LA. Well, I gotta um, ask, we we rarely have anyone that even tangentially <laughs> with freaking so uh well you know especially during um, the cocaine days yeah right uh yeah shoot man i mean there's so <laughs> many um uh okay so <clears throat> trying to think of what i can say that you know won't get somebody in trouble um even now uh but uh anyway you know we're I mean, talking about the same guy that made sorcerer yeah i know or, well, we but, all know okay, so the film was obviously the film was about counterfeiting and um, and so Friedkin wanted accuracy. And so he was working with a guy who was an actual counterfeiter. And he said, I want you to do what you do and I'm going to film it. And, uh, and so the guy, you know, did his counterfeiting routine, um, which obviously at the time, you know, was a very complicated, very sophisticated process. I mean, it's not like now where you have these, you know, scanners that can do this kind of stuff. So all of this stuff that he had to do, uh, which of course is shown partly in the movie. And uh, he produced the first bills and Friedkin looked at him and said, come on, you're kidding me. This is garbage. You can't, this is not going to pass anywhere. You're not doing it the way you really do it. And the guy is like, okay, so back to work. And he did the real deal and they were printing this money and some people on the crew started taking sheets of the money and going out and passing it. And so uh, the treasury department showed up, they figured out what was happening and said, uh, you guys, you know, somebody's passing counterfeit bills and, you know, we think it's coming from here. And, uh, and so, and then they also had to look at the movie and when they looked at the movie, they said, you can't show that. It's literally a how-to step-by-step process of what needs to happen. And so they made him cut a bunch of things and rearrange some things so that it's not you know, accurate in the way that you could tell how to do it just from seeing the film. 
Anyway, I know of at least one crew member who did take a sheet, who did not spend it, uh, but framed it instead and kept it, which <laughs> I think is the, is the smart thing to do uh, in, that, in that case. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, lots of other really crazy stories from that. I mean, lots of crazy stories from, you know, all kinds of stuff. Of course, you know, other things that I've been involved with, but those are a lot of, lot of fun. Like Midnight Run. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I was, almost, re, I was uh, rewatching it the other night and yes. well before this, and I hadn't seen it in a few years, and it holds up. Oh yeah, it's it does. Great. Yeah, it's, it does. It's, it's really really terrific. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was Marty's assistant, the director's assistant, mm -hmm. um, on post production, so he had a different PA on uh, the shoot. And when the guy when they got back from the shoot, then he went for took another job, and I was hired as the new assistant to Marty for the post-production process. So I was all through editorial um, and, uh, you know, all through that whole process, sound mixing and, uh, and all of that kind of, you know, all of that scoring. We're going out to Danny Elfman's house um, mm -hmm. when, you know, driving Marty out to Danny Elfman's house when he was doing the preliminary scoring at the studio in his, you know, basement and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So my most fun midnight run story, if you want to hear that one. Oh, please. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, of course. By the way, just speaking real quick about Elfman, I was watching the credits. I forgot he did the music the whole time I'm sitting there going, this isn't Danny Elfman. Yeah. No, it's right? terrific. Uh, no, it's, it's terrific. It's, it's, and I'm not knocking. Great. I yeah. love his. Oh, yeah. His shtick, you know, his, yeah. his, you know, I love it. But yeah, you're listening to it. Going, this isn't Danny Elfman. Oh, it is. No, I mean, you know, Danny had scored Marty's AFI student film, um, uh -huh. a, a movie called Hot Tomorrows. And uh, and Danny and and the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo and all that uh -huh. were, were in the movie. They did music for the movie. So, um, you know, Marty had a, a great relationship with Danny from those early days. And so uh you know there was another composer on the film and then um and then danny came on and uh and it was great because it was all the guy it was steve bartek it was johnny vatos it was all the guys from oingo boingo in there with all these other studio musicians so you know i'm hanging out in the studio with all those guys while they're recording the soundtrack and i'm you know we just had a it was great it was really a lot of fun and lots of fun stories from that too but anyway you got to remember, you know, Midnight Run, this is in 1988. Mm -hmm. um, so there's nothing digital. Uh, everything is on actual film. And um, at the time, uh, the sound mixing process was an incredibly complex process where uh, all the sound is transferred to Magstock, which is perforated magnetic tape that runs in sync with the perforated film on the flatbed editors and then the sound editors have to take each track of sound obviously cut it together on you know with this mag stock these flatbeds and then put it on these reels that play on individual players inside this giant room so there's a hundred magnetic tape machines you know these mag stock players that are running simultaneously to the mixing stage where they're at the mixing board then adjusting the levels of all of those sounds. Well, when you're going through the process of mixing a movie, then you're watching the movie in these very tiny bites. You know, you're watching one minute of the movie and then you're stopping 
and you're going back and he's saying, adjust that. I want the gunshot a little louder. I want the footsteps more, you know, quieter. I want the music up a little bit. And then they make those adjustments. They run the minute again and we go back again. And you, you know, you're doing it for weeks, um, watching the movie over and over again like this. Well, we're getting very far into this process and we're, you know, not on schedule. Uh, the movie's release is coming up very soon. Uh, in order to get uh, Ra uh, Siskel and Ebert to review the film on time, uh, the movie has to be flown to Chicago to screen for them, or it's not going to make the show, you know, for opening weekend. Well, we're in the recording studio or, you know, on the recording stage the night before this has to be in Chicago the next day, still mixing. And we finally finished mixing. And then what has to happen is a print has to be struck of the movie with the finished mixed soundtrack being printed, you know, into the optical soundtrack of this final print. Right. And that has to be put together. And, uh, and then it's gonna be flown to Chicago. Well, in order to get it there on time, they bought two plane tickets, one for the movie because it's in these giant film cans and it's gonna occupy its own seat on the plane. They bought a seat for it on the plane so they don't have to check it through luggage. Mm -hmm. And an editor is gonna fly with it. It's Chris Laban's on, a guy who's edited a bunch of uh, Tim Burton movies and you know Top Gun and a bunch of stuff. He's a great guy, still a friend. And, um, and so I have the task of staying in the mixing stage, waiting for this print, which has to be run in real time, waiting for the print to be struck. I take the one print of the movie in my car and I have to drive it to Chris's house to meet him at like 5 a.m. so that he can be met by the car that's gonna take him to the airport and, uh, and he's gonna fly the print to Chicago. So, you know, I wait and it's like three o'clock in the morning. I get the print in my car. I drive over to this deli that I like to eat at, Jerry's famous deli in mm -hmm. Studio City. And I'm gonna, you know, get some blintzes while I'm waiting. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there and I'm eating and I've got the only print of this movie in my car. It's gotta be at Siskel and Ebert tomorrow. And flashes in my mind, you know, I should call him and say, I'm kidnapping your print. And if you don't pay me <laughs> $250,000, I'm not delivering this print. Now, of course, you know, I didn't do that. Um, and, uh, but I thought, what a great idea for a movie, right? You know, yeah. um, and unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore because, you know, everything is digital now. It's all digital. So they've got yeah. all these cloud-based copies and, you know, nobody could get away with it. But it just, it, it boggles my mind that they sent me in a car with the print, you know, into Los Angeles in the middle of the night. And uh, what could have happened, you know, to me if something had happened to it? And uh, anyway, needless to say, it did make it to the plane on time. It did make it to Chicago on time. And, uh, you know, so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's just, you're right. And you're young. Think about it. There's, just take the kid. Just take it up there, and then you stop to get something to eat. Mm -hmm. I think Martin you... Brest. I think Martin would have gone full on Liam Neeson. Taken. <laughs> That's I mean, true. This oh, is yeah. my follow up to Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> yeah. I will murder. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. I mean, you know, I knew, of course, it would be the end if anything happened. I mean, it was the end of if anything happened. You know, on all the other jobs I had, but 
yeah. but that especially. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just a really, it's an unbelievable kind of process and um, you know, amazing thing. Man, we promised we'd try to keep it under an hour. I, we appreciate you so much. We went over an hour. We went know, an hour and 10, 15 minutes. I apologize for that. No, not at all. Thanks. Before we go, mm-hmm. let's talk about Jacob's wife is on Shutter right now. And you can also buy it on Blu-ray, DVD yes. at any store. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk. Where, where is the rest of our words? What about our books and our movies? Let's tell people where they can get them. Oh, everything's uh, linked at MarkSteensland.com. So if you Got just it. go to, to MarkSteensland.com, then, you know, all the stuff is uh, there. Not everything has a link. I mean, I have covers from some of the early journalism that I did, but I don't have links to online um, versions of that stuff. You know, I mean, I wrote uh, the cover story to uh, American Cinematographer Magazine for Big Trouble in Little China. That was Dean Cundy's first appearance. Um on in the mag on the cover of the magazine as an ASC member, uh-huh. and uh, so I got to spend a few days on the set of that movie. And- oh my God! Why didn't we talk about that? Well, we can. <laughs> Let's do. <laughs> oh, yeah, do go it. ahead, talk we about gotta it. We got to do it. <laughs> go, go. You uh, brought it up. Uh, so, well, I mean, I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. And, so are we. Know, so, yeah, yeah, and so I'm from I have Kentucky. A, I've had a lot. Yeah, I know. I've I've <laughs> been to Bowling Green because of. John, I when I drove through there, I you know I wanted to visit there. I've also been to Carthage, New York, where he was born. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, a little bit of a fanatic. Uh, I've had I met him a bunch of times, and you know had a number of interactions with him in different uh, ways on different films. Um, Starman was the first movie set I ever visited, um, and I was 18. I was uh, you know barely out of high school, and I had kind of talked my way into uh, getting on that film set. Drove. 18 hours to Arizona from my home in California and got to spend a couple of days um, on that set watching Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen do cool stuff at Meteor Crater and, uh, and meeting John, uh, meeting yeah. Sandy, uh, you know, who he's married to now, um, uh-huh. Larry Franco and, you know, all the, the group. Um, and so uh, then uh, Big Trouble Little China um, was, as I said, I was uh, doing the coverage of Dean for that uh, particular film. So I was, I was on set a couple of times once um, when they were filming the, uh, the big uh, street fight sequence where it's yeah. a funeral procession and then the two gangs, you know, mm-hmm. confront each other and all that stuff happens. And that was all, all that stuff was built on a soundstage at 20th Century Fox. And so, you know, it's obviously supposed to look like it's exterior San Francisco, but it was really inside um, the sound stages at 20th Century Fox. So that was a lot of fun watching that. And then the nighttime stuff um, that was like uh, outside the White Tiger where Uh they drive up and, you know, it's raining and all that kind of stuff. So that was actually shot on, I'm I'm really going to, I'm going to say my memory is serving me correctly on this that was shot on halloween night that year because goldie hawn brought the kids and i'm assuming that that meant that that means kate was in that group yeah. uh, to the set to trick or treat and everybody they went behind the doors of the facades of the exterior set there and they went from door to door you know knocking 
and having the door open and different crew members and they got to say trick or treat and give candy delivered to them <laughs> and stuff. And so we had to, you know, they held up production while the kids and Goldie trick or treated while they were visiting, um, you know, Kurt Russell, of course. So it was, you know, a lot of fun to see that and, uh, you know, watch that kind of stuff happen. A lot of fun to see him make magic like that. Was John still as tight-lipped and kind of, uh, and by the way, he's my second favorite director, and I mean that no disrespect. He just, yeah. and I've met him a couple of times. He actually was very nice to me. Yeah. First but, one being Jane Jabon. <laughs> John. But anyway, back to what we were saying. Back Are you tired? <laughs> Shut up. Ooh. There we go. <laughs> back to what I was saying. Was he still kind of, was he a little bit of the curmudgeon then too? Um. I mean, yeah, I, I suppose so. You know, uh, I think that's that's his it's thing. It's just his personality. Yeah, I think that's his thing. Um, I was desperately trying to convince him to let me write a book about it. And uh, I had worked out um, a whole, you know, an outline of everything that I was going to do. Um, and I had a great title. Uh, and um, I got the opportunity to pitch that to him directly while he was making Big Trouble in Little China as a kind of separate thing. Yeah. Um, and he looked it all over and he said, you know, no, I don't think I really want to do this right now. And, uh, and so then years went by and then I had another opportunity. I went to watch him record the score for Escape from LA. Uh -huh. And so I was covering Shirley Walker for Electronic Musician Magazine. And John came by the studio for um, an interview, you know, for a sidebar. And I asked him again, I said, I still, you know, by this time, other people had written books about him, you know, some stuff uh, in the U.S. and some foreign stuff as well. And he said, yeah, I, I may be interested in that now, but then, you know, nothing ever came of it, unfortunately. So, um, you know, obviously never happened, um, but, you know, it's just one of those things you just kind of go with the way things are, so. I know, but I, I, I truly think the man has no desire to talk about himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the work stands. So, uh, yeah. Or yeah. talk about the movies for that most. I mean, you every yeah, once yeah. in a while, you can see someone ask him a question and it'll lead him to something. Yeah. yeah. Memory lane. Yeah. But for the most part, it's if you go through and you watch the interviews, he's got the standard. Uh, oh, uh, are we almost done? I got to meet my drug dealer. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same line. I've <laughs> yeah, watched well, it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's the same. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a great story from Prince of Darkness. Oh, um, good. Which is so, an underrated Jesus. film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Nick talked about it the last episode. So the yeah. guys, um, one of the guys who was an assistant editor on 8 million ways to die when I was working on mannequin and wisdom was a guy who, um, also was assistant editor on Prince of Darkness. And so they were shooting Prince of Darkness downtown Los Angeles. And, um, you know, Shep Gordon and Andre Blay, who formed Alive Pictures and yeah. funded those two movies, Prince of Darkness yeah. and They Live, uh, were Alice Cooper's manager. Or and there's a great I, documentary about Shep done by Michael Martin. By, yes. By yes. Mike Superman. Yes. Superman. Right. Superman. Um, and so, Thanks, Jeff. Uh, you know, Cooper knew oh. that Carpenter's shooting this movie and Cooper drives down to the set and he wants to watch it going on. And John says to him, you want to be in the movie? I'll put you in the movie. So Cooper says, okay. So <laughs> they throw this bum 
gear on Alice Cooper. And, you know, the, the knit uh -huh. cap and the old warm eaten jacket and, and all this stuff. And they set up the long tracking shot outside the church that goes across all of the faces of the bums and ends on Alice Cooper. Hold and stop. Thanks, John. See you later. Rushes get processed. You know, again, we're back in the non-digital days. So the film goes to the lab. It gets developed. The prints are struck. It goes to the cutting room. The guys in the cutting room are watching this and they're all, is that Alice Cooper? <laughs> and so John, like, was so excited about the fact that, you know, they knew it was Alice Cooper and they were excited about Alice Cooper being in the movie that he literally went back and wrote all that stuff for Alice Cooper as a character with him, with the bicycle, with him, you know, leading the other bums and all that kind of stuff and brought him back to shoot all of that extra stuff. And of course, you know, record a song for the movie <laughs> and, uh, you know, and all that stuff. So a really kind of interesting, fun way to, you know, end up with somebody like that in, in a cool, spot in your cool movie because the, the the effect they did is something that alice did on on the stage correct if, if i'm recalling that correct where he actually kills the guy with a bit of the bicycle or something it's something that yeah. they do similar he did yeah. it on the stage and they yeah. just took what he did on the stage and put it yeah. in the movie it's a yeah. practical effect yeah it may very well be yeah 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 well now i'm i'm so i'm glad we didn't end right there <laughs> yeah no what gold mine <laughs> Any, anybody else you want to talk about before we go oh shoot now i've um, run out of i've i've i mean i didn't know we we're going to go down a gold mine of carpenter stories yeah well i mean you know i wrote a couple of books on michael mann so um <laughs> oh my god <laughs> uh, all right so i have a story for you yeah i won't say the director's name but we did a two-part with him he may have directed poltergeist three mm-hmm i'll narrow it down his first name may be gary yeah he uh it came out in our interview uh that's the most dis he hates him they used yeah. to be partners mm. do you know yeah. the story i i don't know that story i know plenty of other stories that are you know whatever they are i mean i had a very interesting experience um it was i had written a book about michael um through ali yeah. And um, and that was, you know, I tried to get him to participate and was never able to. I mean, I was trying to get an interview with Michael as far back as to keep. And believe it or not, I actually got his home telephone number and I was calling his house trying to interview him uh, about the keep. And his housekeeper kept saying he's not back from England yet. You know, like they're still shooting the movie <laughs> over there. Um, and so I was persistent. Um, that never happened. Um, I actually ended up interviewing Alex Thompson, the cinematographer uh, from the film. But anyway, so years later, then I wrote this book for Michael as part of a series called Pocket Essentials. Tried to get his cooperation, never did, you know, never got an interview. <laughs> yeah. um, the book came out and, uh, and I sent some, got sent to Michael and he read it and he called me up and he said, okay, uh, I want you to write the real book on me. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm going to give you access to everything. Um, and this was right when he was uh, starting to make collateral. Uh -huh. So uh, I was going on into the offices when they were making collateral and going on the set. I was on the set more than any other set other than something that I actually worked on. 
um, I was on the set of Collateral and you know interviewing all these people. Tom Cruise called me on Oscar night after he gave the Oscar to Peter Jackson for uh, was it Return of the King? Yeah, he oh yeah, Return of the King. Yeah. He, he walked off stage and he called me to do the interview because that was the only time that he could do the interview for uh, for the book. So uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, so uh, you know I had access to all that stuff. I mean ultimately that didn't work out. Uh, they brought another writer on to, to write a slightly different book. And uh, they did use a lot of my material because I had done all these interviews and so forth, you know, so I got some, uh, some cool stuff in the book. But boy, yeah, I mean, the fascinating stories that, uh, that all of those people had to tell me, you know, Dennis Barina and um, Dante Spinotti and, and I mean, you know, on and on. Yeah. Uh, a list of people I didn't get to interview like Pacino never worked out and and uh, De Niro didn't work out um, but lots of other people did and you know really interesting experience so which is funny because isn't Pacino on the cover um, of what of, of the of the book am I looking at the wrong book or are we talking about the pocket we're talking about the pocket guy the, so the pocket essentials book has a still from Mohicans on it I think yeah. And, um, and then uh, the Tashin book is the one, uh, the book um, that- Oh, sorry, is, that's, that's De Niro, that's not Pacino. I was not, my glasses yeah. are failing. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so yeah, so I, I was writing the Tashin book and then, um, then they brought FX Feeney on after me, uh, you know, to, to do something different. Um, and I was also working with Favor and Favor to do what ultimately was gonna be, you know, called Man on Man, which was, uh, you know, those interview style books that they did. That's what I really, I mean, I really was, uh, that was what kind of was the first thing that we were talking about doing. And, right. uh, and then the Tashin thing came up and that became a, an extra project. The favorite, favorite thing fell through, um, you know, so anyway, but yeah, very, uh, very interesting experience. And uh, yeah, lots of really cool stuff from that as well. I actually was introduced to uh, FX Feeney, am I saying it correctly, mm-hmm. on on a documentary about the Z Channel. Hmm. And I, I learned about him as I went from there. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he just yeah. passed away last year. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what is your best Michael Mann story, being around the man? Because but, but remember, <laughs> I have someone who would want to murder him. Yeah whom I've interviewed. And then we have a friend who does a show in Australia that we do content for, and he's uh-huh. on back and forth. And he had an interesting experience meeting and interviewing him once as well. Yeah. I won't um, tell that story. But yeah. Um, boy. So most of ours are not positive. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of, um, I mean, you know, obviously he is, he is a singular filmmaker. There is no question about that. I Absolutely. Mean, his, you know, Steve. what he well, yeah, does and the way that he does it is, is really unbelievable. I think probably, you know, and one of the most fascinating uh, experiences tied to that was going into the space, um, and he does this for every movie, is... Uh, and going into this space in the production offices where there's a room that is devoted to only this thing, which is the crew goes to 
every location that they are going to use in the movie and shoots still photographs of everything that's sort of what the setups are going to be like with the with this crew the behind the scenes crew going around sort of acting as stand-ins and then all of those things are posted up on the wall in order obviously in film order well there's hundreds of photographs and when you walk into that space and it's this mosaic and you see the entire movie and you see the way the color shifts across the whole movie right like Mm -hmm. These scenes take place during the day. So there's this white sunlight and now we're, you know, under this sodium vapor streetlight and now we're in this club environment, you know, and, and so on. And you're watching and you can see how he's visually planning the entire movie, uh, you know, in that way. It's really an unbelievable experience. I mean, because, you know, that's something that I don't think a lot of directors do. Uh, like Kubrick, shows. Kubrick, yeah, yeah, yeah Kubrick for, for sure. Eyes Wide Shut, yeah, oh, ab yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah, very similar kind of uh, kind of process. And another director that I admire greatly. I mean, for that because it's it pays off, you know, in the movies themselves, it pays off so substantially. Um, I think with the end product, and uh, you know, in in a lot of those movies, it's really uh, really something else. So you know, I mean, it's. And you work, you know, you're working with something like that. There is a level of control that's necessary to do yeah. what he does. So, um, you know, that's so the way just it hearing that it's intimidating. I just, I trying to visualize that in my head. I'm intimidated to think about. I'd be the one that would accidentally knock one off or something. It would be well. That would be the bonehead version of a Michael Mann film. As we come in yeah. and, knock, and slam the door and the photos fall. fall. I mean, that would be my luck. If it would be that, you would know, be, that would bonehead does Michael Mann stick him back up with bubble gum or something. Yeah, be, yeah, yeah. It would turn into a I Love Lucy episode very quickly. Basically, <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much. We have of had course. an absolute blast. I hope yeah. it doesn't it's suck. It's been great. Yeah, we've we've uh, loved every minute of it. Me too. Love to have you back anytime you want. Sure. Next time, I I know you can't talk about what's in production, what you've got sold, what's ready to come out, but when it's coming, you let us know. I will. And we will be the first to blow the hell out of it and have you on the show <laughs> okay. and you can talk all about it. Deal? Okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. All right. Well, I'm going to stop recording. Thank you so much. It's been all a right. Mark. Thank you. Yeah. Grrrr. <sniffs>